0: I V M The Inheritors podcast series by Bloomberg Quint
1: I am Sonu Bhaseen and you're listening to The Inheritors a podcast series that covers all aspects of family businesses Today I'm in conversation with Smita Bajoria the founder and head of Heritage Insurance Brokers Private Limited this is an insurance and reinsurance services company, and Smitha is amongst a handful of women not only in India, but across the world that are part of this very specialized business. Besides this, Smitha runs an art gallery in Calcutta, and she is also the Council General of Denmark for Eastern India. To hear more about her very interesting life story, let's go right across to Calcutta and catch Smitha in her beautiful green garden and have a conversation with her. Hi, Smitha. Thank you so much for taking time out on this wonderful morning and uh, talking to all of us and sharing your life story and your interesting journey. Thank you. Thank you, Solu, and thank you. Solu your colleagues,
2: uh, it's lovely to be on, um, in a conversation with you. And uh, I hope that um, I'll be able to uh, sort of share and, and sort of w- what my journey has been. It'll be interesting to discuss this with
1: you. Yeah, and what a journey it's been, Smita. Um, you are part of a business family now and you have your own independent identity which is really uh, not the norm in uh, business families, and especially Marwadi business families. So how, can you just share with us about how, how, you've, how you've done this uh, uh, carving out of a, of a business niche for yourself? Yeah,
2: so actually I think my first work experience was when my husband was running a jute mill and I started running a farm. And uh, because there was a lot of land and I got interested in growing uh, organic vegetables, but the ones which were really liked by people, but not really available or grown here. So that gave me a lot of experience on how to deal with people, how to deal with five-star hotels, how to deal with clients when they were having large-scale weddings and what they wanted. So that really was my first stepping stone to doing commerce and doing business and uh, how to sort of said the supplies, how to phase out the growing, but really gave me a lot of insight as to what people wanted. And then I sort of stuck to, uh, I, I moved out of that area of farming because my husband sold the jute mill and uh, there was no other land where I could cultivate and I began um, the insurance broking business. And there also it was more people's interaction, finding out, uh, what the areas were. We have worked on very large projects like the ONGCs, onshore and offshore uh, insurance programs, how they are petrochemicals and a lot of nuclear power plants and all. And it, it was in two ways. I will first describe that professionally it was very challenging because not many women are in reinsurance worldwide, not only in India. So it was challenging. It's partly technical, partly legal insurance. It's technical is when you go through Uh, plans, insurance requirements, you know, usually they have engineers or people to find out what is really required, and then it's partly legal because the insurance document is a legal document. It's a legally binding document. So there was a steep learning curve, but I think the people were very forthcoming, the family was very forthcoming, they were very encouraging. And the professionals I dealt with in the insurance uh, companies or in the individual client companies were also very encouraging and forthcoming and they were always trying to help. And the family was rallying behind me, my mother-in-law, my husband, father-in-law, everybody was rallying behind me because it necessitated that i travel to destinations which were outside of India, sometimes to places which were not really the trodden path for, you know, where we had been to Israel, to Bangladesh. I'm talking about 15, 18 years ago. So there was a bit of uncertainty as to where I was going, but there were not really many questions asked. I mean, there were only words of encouragement.
1: So, which is uh, which is actually quite fantastic because in all my conversations, especially with women uh, from family businesses, they've always said that, you know, we, w- we wanted to do things. We wanted to do something on our own, but our family did not... Uh, Support us, or we we wanted to do it. So I always got the feeling that women kind of wait to be told to do something, or they wait for somebody to handhold them, um, and they get discouraged when they run into their first uh, uh, first questions or first uh, dis- you know some some uh, discouragement from the family. How did you manage to win the family over?
2: Um.
1: Yeah, I think uh,
2: I was a bit of a rebel because I was horse riding before. I was riding at a national level. So that was a bit of a, a rebellious act because riding is a bit of a dangerous sport. So the family, my mother's side, um, on my parents' side, they were very encouraging because I was doing all sorts of sports and we were brought up, <clears throat> my brother and I, to be equals. There were, no, there were no negative compromises I had to make. I mean, it was only very positive. So when I got married... I felt the same way. I never felt that I was in any way um, not incapable or less capable than any other male member in my husband's family. And uh, not having a lot of capital, the reason why I went into the service industry because it required far less capital than a manufacturing uh, company or a business to run, which entailed a lot of capital deployment. So I naturally chose the route of the service company. Um, using more uh, sort of, uh, you know, actively the service part rather than the capital part. And I must say that, uh, you know, there was no discouragement at all. And I think that the the fact, I think what really was positive was they realized that I was serious about the work. I was sort of going at it or that people were also taking me seriously. The insurance companies or the clients were taking me seriously, offering the business and I got Business at the right time, uh, so there was no really resistance for me to not work uh, because I never sort of they realized that I was serious and I would possibly not take no for an answer.
1: Yeah, um, so, so what, maybe
2: both the combinations of the combinations of these three factors.
1: Yeah, so, really... so what I'm actually hearing uh, you uh, and my what I'm hearing you say yeah. is that uh, it is actually up to the women to decide what they want to do and then uh, and then you know start a process of uh, uh, negotiation with the family and to to tell them that they're indeed serious and this is not something that they want to do as time pass or uh, uh, you know, just as something that they want to uh, tell the world that they're doing. So, uh, so how can actually women prepare themselves to start this process of uh, negotiation with the family?
2: I think there has to be mutual
1: trust. There
2: has to be a mutual understanding and trust. The Family members... Uh, sometimes feel that, you know, if the daughter-in-law goes out, they will not be giving time to the family or to their children. Uh, So there has to be a deep understanding where we have to, you know, they have to get that feeling that, yes, you are there all the time. Physically, even if I'm not in the house for that seven, eight hours or nine hours, I'm still there when the family needs. I'm there for somebody when they're sick or when there is something in the house on a day to day basis, I'm taking care of the the staff or the kitchen or you know, you know, literally the day to day matters, one has to plan and take care of and even like when somebody's sick or ill or there's a family function. So I think if one and the children are not neglected, the husband doesn't feel neglected. So there is a bit of planning which needs to be done and the family needs to be I think the family automatically will see it within a few days that yes the daughter-in-law is there when I need her. She's sitting with me. She's talking to me. So it just is a sort of an adjustment which has to be um, made. And that
0: it's not that if I'm sitting at home the whole day, I love my in-laws or my kids more
2: than I am there for some shorter period of time. So that once that is understood, I think, by the family, and if that is a feeling which
1: they're able to convey, I... I don't think there's much of a problem, you know. Yeah, and as as you know, of what you've described as a a, a woman in <coughs> family business is actually the same that applies to women who are uh, working, who are employers. I mean, they have to. Yeah. They have to. They have to. Uh, they have. It's a constant process of building trust, building uh, 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 a process of negotiation, where uh, they also have to. You know, create their own identity both in the office and as in the uh, in the in the family. But having yeah. been uh, a part of a business and running your own business over the last uh, many years, I'm sure that yeah. you've had some interesting experiences when you've gone out and uh, people have reacted to you either positively or negatively. Would you like to share any with the listeners? So I'll tell you. What- about an incident. I mean, this was this was about uh,
2: nearly 14 years ago, and I was a broker for ONGC for the large installation. And in 2005, uh, in Bombay, there was this massive uh, flooding incident, and uh, the, one of the ONGC platforms uh, had a massive fire because a large supply vessel of theirs collided with the platform, and the whole supply vessel was destroyed. And a large part of the platform was destroyed. And uh, the loss was about 1,500 crores. And because Bombay was flooded, <clears throat> because Bombay was so badly flooded, uh, nobody could access the ONGC office or the United office. And so the chairman of ONGC was in constant touch on the phone and said, what are you going to do about it? So I said, I was speaking to, to my overseas associates and I said, don't worry, within 40 days, we'll give you the first cash call of 700. And he, I don't know whether he believed it or not, but to cut a long story short, within 40 days, the people I was working with, the reinsurers abroad, were ready with the check of 700 crores. So he was so overwhelmed, he had a reception in Bombay and he said, I'm going to make an occasion out of this. And so all the reinsurers, about five, six of them, were invited, all men the United India Insurance, which is a Chennai-based insurance company, their chairman and the board of directors were invited. ONGC's top officials and some other government officials were invited. So this was to be a formal check-giving ceremony for the loss. And... um, I think that Mr. Raha, who was the then chairman, could not believe that such a thing would have happened. And everybody sort of uh, gave speeches all around. And towards the end, he said, Switha, come here. And I was sitting, standing next to him and he pulled out two cigars. And he said, uh, this, this cigar is for the only man in the room. And so he said, you have to light this up now. And he lit up the other one. And, you know, there were like 70, 60, 70 men in the room. So, wow. I mean, that is, is a, is a I mean, He was, of course, a very sort of different kind of person. But that was really a a, a moment which I cherished because, I mean, everybody recognized me, whether it was the international reinsurers or whether it was the government here, whether it was United or ONGC. I mean, I got a standing applause that day and, you know, this acknowledgement was something which was quite, um, for me, a big thing. Um, So usually people would... You know, people may turn around and say, Okay, she comes from a business family, she's not know, she's not serious about her business, but this was a true recognition, you know, in many, many ways.
1: Yeah, uh, I and I do think that giving you the cigar uh, could yeah. not have put it better. And I, I find it, uh, I find it uh, really, really interesting that he did that. But you just said that you know, uh, coming from a business family, she could have, she she couldn't have done this. So, do you, in your opinion, do do women from business families suffer from this? Burden that they are not taken for their initially, they're not taken for what intellect or what skills they bring onto the table or the business, but it's thought that a husband ka business, hai, uske father ka business hai, she is also being part of it. In your opinion, does it happen? Have you seen it happen with others? See the word? <clears throat>
2: the universe is very wide and you know there are people there are people out there both men and women who who live with their own experience and then they judge people with their own their own experience of their own life and not only men I think women also who have not who don't want to seriously take up a career and want to make a show of it will sometimes posture and say that no she's not serious she's just doing it for the heck of it and so will men but uh, it you can you know why I feel that I did sometimes hear some comments, but when, I, when, I, when one goes about one's work seriously, I think people do respect uh, uh, the individual, whether it's a man or a woman, then it really doesn't matter. And uh, initially when I started the company, people thought that, no, she, I will sort of stop working after a few months. But then I was able to attract in the company, a lot of talent from the insurance industry to handle these accounts like ONGC and the nuclear power plants. So, initially there may have been some resistance from the community and from the professionals but then they rally around you and I think there have been many instances where people have sort of said that oh, um, she's working very hard and they go the extra mile to even sort of uh, give work and to sort of involve the involve me more in the work than
1: they, than they normally
2: would have, I would thought. So I think that once people know you're serious, people really rally behind you, not only the family, but even, like, this, is a, this was an industry which was not privatized at that time. It was just, just the four insurance companies. But then once they realized that I was getting a job done, they were involving me, and they were sort of asking for sort of quotations or whatever the case may be, what was required, at that
1: time, yeah, and in your team uh, do you have a lot of women or do you uh, do you have uh, a large number of men, and what is your leadership style and would you say that it uh, uh, it differs from say your husband's um, see
2: my husband runs a manufacturing company, you know so it's quite different, I think that he needs to delve into these meetings and he needs to talk to his people much more occasionally because there is a set hierarchy of the person in the factory that is somebody who's they are reporting to. So in a manufacturing company I think it's far set but in a <clears throat> service company it's a very evolving sort of situation in a service company because the, the world is my universe. When I'm trying to tap a client it could be a a bank's employees, it could be a pharmaceutical company, it could be a, a company like ONGC. So that is has to be constant. <clears throat> I'm having to constantly be in touch with uh, my people. So it's fl- far more flat in terms of how I run it. So I'm talking to different uh, people in my organization at different times, depending on what we need to target. Like, suppose if I'm trying to target some business in Bangladesh. Recently, we're trying to target a business in Ivory Coast. So, at any time, in the different people have different contacts in the company. So, we work in a very flat way and anybody can walk up to me and say, this opportunity is there, should we go for it? Or if I hear of something, I have to sort of discuss with my colleagues and say look um, you know some some Indian client is building a transmission path a transmission line in the Ivory coast or in Sri Lanka and I think this is what we should try and do to target it so it's far more flatter it's far more uh, less structured I would say you know yeah and um, so it's um, different to what my husband runs I think because of the Sure, uh, sort of... The, the nature the business, of The its style is differing based on the business that uh, each of us is running, actually. Yeah. Or each of us is engaged in. Yeah,
1: right. So, a lot of uh, times I've heard that... Uh, on the dining table the uh, children grow up hearing their father talk largely it's their father's talk about the business but here in your household your children would have grown up uh, listening to both their mother and father uh, talk about business if any and uh, is is there anything that you would say that your husband would have uh, learned from you, I mean learned is a very strong word but is there yeah, is there yeah. anything that he would have said yeah Smitha, you seem to be doing this maybe I should try it at my workplace has your husband uh, learned anything or has he ever said Smitha, you seem to be doing this well and let me uh, let me let me do this by my let me try and do this. Okay so what he probably admires are my PR
2: skills because in the service industry you really have to reach out to many more people in you know in different companies, in different environments, in different countries. So I think he admires my PR skills. I'm not sure whether he wants to invite those because he not, probably doesn't need it in his industry, but he admires that. And he uh, he admires the fact that if he gives me a job, he you knows I'll get to the bottom of it. You know, and try and understand the business and work that business from a point of knowledge. And understanding, like, he's given me the entire family office to run um, all the all the money that he gets from dividends and all the money that it belongs to him and me. And he says that over six six years, I think, the you've done a good job. So he uh, he's a very thorough person, you know. So, in fact, I've learned more from him, uh, you know, that you, when you plan a business, you must put it to paper first, the plan. You must uh, sort of, you know, visualize or try and think in your mind the different scenarios. You must uh, you know, make small mistakes but then eventually when you do something it should be with conviction and with research and with knowledge. So I think that's the things which I've picked up which are more important for business. Yeah. He probably has picked up the fact that I have good PR skills, I keep up with people or that once I get a job I sort of
0: would not leave it to just chance or hearsay or listen to people but take a decision with some amount of research and conviction having
2: read about it or learnt about it.
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know, through our conversations earlier... Uh, you have mentioned that you are now, that you, you know, this, the reinsurance and the family office is not the only uh, work that you do. You run yeah. an art, art gallery. You are the honorary council for uh, uh, the, the country of Denmark. Denmark. So uh, do tell me, how did all these other things come about? And what is it that you do as part of the council, and as as and how do you, what kind of an art gallery, what kind of uh, uh, patronage do you provide? So, okay, so then I will tell you about this, but I'll also tell you about a new
2: digital health offering venture which uh, I'm embarking and which we'll be launching in June. Yeah. So, the gallery came about because uh, I used, when I got married, and I, I was very young when I got married, I'm only 18, so I was keen to learn about art. And so I used to visit very few. There were only two or three galleries in Calcutta I used to visit art. And then a very good friend said, why don't you, you know, you have some spare time. So why don't you learn how to paint? So those days uh, there was a ex-teacher of uh, one of the government art colleges. And he would come once a week and teach me how to paint, um, <clears throat> hoping that I might take it up as a full-time vocation. But I learned through that, I learned about the various techniques of painting, whether it's oil painting or whether it's watercolor or acrylic. And then I, whenever there was a nice exhibition in town, he, I would I would tell him, sir, why don't you take me to the gallery and explain the nuances of art? You know, how do you understand it? How do you read a painting? What is there? Because my eyes were very untrained. I was very young, 18 or 19. And so we would go to this gallery together and learn. And... As a result of that, I was very fortunate to start a collection
0: of art when I was very young. So I have this very, very good collection of
2: Bengal art, which is um, quite a precious one because it has a lot of artists of those era who become now very, very popular. So, and then I realized about 15, 12 years ago that you know I've received a lot from art. It's sort of broadened my horizon it sort of puts you in touch with a lot of artists who come from different walks of life and also it shows the struggles of their life the painting depicts the struggles like a lot of art I've seen in the Delhi Art Fair talks about the issues in Kashmir or it talks about day-to-day issues or it talks about gender issues so it sort of enriches my life the art enriches my life because in a social strata where everybody is equal and everybody has a lot of everything then you sometimes don't on a day-to-day basis come in touch with people who are talking about these issues through their art. So I, I think I'm very fortunate to be able to not only to be exposed to this art, but also on a day-to-day basis meet these artists because on real terms, and they are talking about what are the issues and how they are expressing it and how they are trying to bridge the gender gap or the financial gap or whatever it may be. So it has enriched my life. So I thought I must start a gallery. I always wanted to, but it was only due to lack of time that I could not. And then I said, if I don't do it now, I will never be able to do it. So basically, we started the gallery in 2007. And the idea was to uh, showcase younger artists who don't find a platform all the time. So talented artists, we've shown art from Nepal, we've shown art from Iran, we've shown art from Denmark, from all over the world. And also, of course, a lot of art from India. So it's the, the I, As I tell the artists, the gallery is your stage. I mean, you use this stage or you use this area as your own. If you propose a pro, if you propose a good sh- show, I'll be very happy to host the show. So
0: it's like giving back to the artists. It's like giving back to the society. Because it's helped me to enrich my
2: life in the last 30 years. Art has enriched my life. So that's the way I look at the gallery. And we've done some fabulous shows at the gallery.
1: And I think it continues to enrich my life because every time I do a show, there's something to learn from that show. Yeah, and do you still continue to paint, Smita?
2: I don't continue to paint, but as a promise to myself, I continue to visit art galleries and (laughs) museums wherever I am. (laughs) Because painting, painting, horse riding, like I used to do all this, takes up a lot of time. Like I used to do competitive horse riding when I was very much younger, but each of these
1: activities takes up three, four hours of time, you know, because you need to do it. Yeah,
2: if I'm not doing something well I'm not satisfied it's like you Sonu I mean you're a very gifted individual you write books but unless you do something well I suppose you don't get that satisfaction so you need to really take time to do something which I
0: feel I'm not able to do at this stage you know
1: yeah so hopefully there will be one day when you will and for me uh, you know one simple message to all the women who want to do things later in life is to uh, is get into some competitive sport when you're young because it develops that spirit of competitiveness and the fact that you know I can do it and then uh, so Definitely. yeah so then moving on to this uh, Denmark counselor thing this sounds very interesting yeah. so uh, Are you a diplomat? Yeah, I'm an honorary diplomat. If you read the Vienna Convention, there is a provision for career
2: diplomats in the Vienna Convention Act and there is a provision for honorary diplomats. So we very much uh, fulfill the same functions, we have the same activities. Uh, Earlier I would issue visas for Denmark or for the Schengen earlier, but now it's all been sort of collated through... BSS, so the whole Schengen, because it's sort of a visa from Den, uh, for Denmark would also be applicable for travel within Italy or any of the Schengen states. So they have sort of now collated it. So the activities are uh, sort of uh, trade. You have to help to promote the trade in the country. If if the individual company or the Danish company, like recently a Danish cosmetic company wanted to collaborate with a uh, Indian a small FMCG company for distribution and that's, you know, you have to facilitate it in any way, talk to the embassy, talk to them and, you know, facilitate whatever they need, either speeding up the license, helping them or putting in a word. So Then there are other functions where people adopt children and we, I issue a temporary passport for these children to travel out, so the passport may be valid for 7 to 10 days till they reach Denmark. It could be legal, the companies need, need a lawyer because they've gone into some dispute or there's a divorce case or something, so you recommend doctors. It could be that they need lawyers or doctors, you know, if there's a dispute, a lawyer, or if they're not well. There have been instances where um, Danish have been caught for some wrongdoing, so one has to negotiate and, you know, with the police, you know, go to the police station, make sure that they are defended in court. <clears throat> and they're able to leave the country. So been, these are the similar functions which any diplomat who's a career diplomat also has to fulfill. Yeah. And of course, then there is a PR where you keep up with the government, you know, in case the uh, government is having a industrial show or is having something. And then we also sort of uh, have, within each of ourselves, keep up with the American they're all career diplomats, about 13 career diplomats, but we would meet amongst ourselves and exchange notes and keep up with each other and all the other honorary diplomats. So it's pretty much in a capsule, same thing what a,
1: a career diplomat does, but obviously the workload is not so much, so you know one can spend maybe like few hours in a week and try and fulfill all the duties yeah so as your husband would say this is all part of your uh, relationship building and uh, utilizing your relationship building skills and uh, helping others and uh, yeah. then uh, how how then how then this new digital health uh, space how did this come about so about 15 years ago after the after the
2: um, insurance-broking job, I had started a TPA, which is a third-party claim, the administrative company, so it's for working for the government, for the insurance company. So when they issue a health policy, they would designate a, a claim administrator who would come in and who would administer the claims, issue the ID card and all. So that, that is known as a third-party company, third-party administrative company called a TPA. So, as a result of the build-up over the last 15 years, we now have about 14 million policyholders. And um, every week, almost every week, some friend or somebody would ring me up and say, please, though the process runs smoothly and the claims can be administered. But there is a sort of uh, fear, psychosis in people that if I go to the hospital, will I be looked after? Will my claims be settled? So, every week, almost... In spite of the process running smoothly and on its own, I get a call once a week to say that, Smita, can you help with this or that? So, And as I spoke to people, I realized there's a lot of gap in the market. So the TPA is now settled down. It's run professionally. I'm a shareholder of it, but it's run professionally by a person, a very capable CEO, and we have about 22 offices. So I realized that there is a lot of synergy between what the India needed is they needed, apart from insurance, there are a lot of gaps and lacunae in the system where people don't know which doctor to visit.
0: They do not know which physiotherapist is in that area. They, if they want a GP, if there's somebody very sick, they don't know where to call
2: a visiting GP. If if they don't live here, and if, if they are younger people and their parents are living here, <clears throat> they do not know that uh, for every sort of issue, uh, who to consult so that the required medical treatment or the attention is uh, given to their parents so there's a lot of lacuna and a gap and also Calcutta is a center of medical excellence for a lot of people because from the northeastern states from Bangladesh a lot of people are coming to Calcutta for treatment and many people even in very affluent families really don't know who to go to so who's a good lung specialist who's a good urologist who's a good Eye So what we have devised is we are, and we have a connection because of our TPA with about 7,000 hospitals, Pan-India, in the last 15 years. So what we're doing is we're putting all these on a digital platform. We're tying up with eye doctors. We're tying up with dental, e who are not always a part of insurance. And we're giving a sort of, we're we are offering uh, the customer uh, a seamless kind of experience, which is outside of insurance. So anybody wants... To consult a GP, they just it's app based and computer based, so they can get an appointment for a GP through an app. If, say, your if anybody's parents are living here and they are NRIs, they want that uh, the parents are taken for periodic checkups every three months to the hospital, or that the diabetes uh, tests are administered and the results are sent to them every month, then you know, those are the kind of VIP services which we are. Uh, offering you know so there'll be levels of services and people can opt for different services we're also having an e-commerce um area where you know people can order you know medical things like
0: wheelchairs beds machines like medical equipment medicines all through e-commerce you know so it will be
2: delivered somebody's coming out of hospital they don't have to run around and see where to find a wheelchair they order it online it will be waiting for them in their house when they reach yeah. Likewise, if anybody requires diabetic medicines or the hypertension medicines every month, sort of, say on a designated day of each month, the medicines
1: will reach them. Right. So uh, again, helping people uh, live their lives better is what I understand yeah. uh, this uh, yeah. venture is all about. So before I end with, yeah. I want to ask you: um, yeah. your children, having seen yeah. both their parents work in and successfully, whose footsteps yeah. are they following?
2: I think that. Uh I think they imbibe. As you will know, you have a wonderful son. I think you will you will realize that children imbibe. I think the points. I mean, the as they see their parents live their lives and engage themselves in work. I think the children imbibe. I think good, good uh, values and good points and uh, their style of working from both parents. I, I it's very difficult to delineate and say that these were from my husband or these were from me. But I think that um, the time, the kids may not admit it, but I think as they grow up, maybe they realize that they have imbibed through a process of observation or hearing. As you say on the dining table, when we gather around, they sort of tend to pick up yeah. these values. Hmm.
1: I would say values or style of working from both parents. Yeah, so my challenge always has been that, uh, uh, you know, in spite of having spent almost three decades in the corporate world, Uh, my son always looked upon me more as a mother than as a corporate person and uh, I wonder if uh, you know that has uh, that has you had a similar experience so if I were to ask your son to describe you would you would he first describe you as a uh, as a professional woman who's running a successful business or would he focus on the softer skills of you as a person as a mom
2: no, I think he would uh, he would be balanced in his description because I'm very house-proud as a person and I used to take him for his horse riding classes or his swimming classes or be present in his school when he didn't do his homework. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I was, I was there on the critical times when he needed me to be there or on the good times when he was, uh, you know, when he was riding and he was in a tournament and he was winning a trophy. So I was there. But uh, also he he when he's here uh, and he still comes from UK he stays there he knows that just because he's here for five days I won't be able to because of my work engagements I cannot sit for five days I could not sit even then when he had his holidays I could not sit for five ten days at home I could not I cannot even do it now so I think he appreciates the fact that okay but in the afternoon if he had a swimming so championship I would come back from office and I would meet him at the club or I would pick him up and take him so I feel that he I think the home and work balance he realizes I've been trying to juggle it and maintain it so I don't think he sees me only as a mother or only as a professional right, right. You know,
1: I think it's in his mind I'm I'm thinking it's quite Yeah. And I, my, my overall takeaway after having spent this wonderful conversation times, you know, in conversation with you is that Mm -hmm. this uh, myth that, you know, you have to choose either between family and work is actually a myth. Uh, People, there are ways that uh, women, especially women can find a way to do both and, 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 and give it their best for both. So uh, so thank you, Smita, for talking. Thank you, Sonu. It's been really lovely talking to you
2: and uh, I really enjoyed myself in the morning. Yes. Thank you for asking me. I'm
1: really touched. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. And uh, I I look forward to having another conversation with you in the near future.
0: The Inheritors podcast series by Bloomberg Quint. Think fast. If I tell you I'm Parsi, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Dhan sak, I don't blame you. My name is Parzan Patel. You may know me as the Barbie Bride. Though I run a popular Parsi food blog, the truth is I didn't know anything about Parsi food until I got married. It was just my luck. He turned out to be your typical sadralega-wearing, kawap-khari-eating Parsi boy. And the only thing I knew was Dhan sak, or rather, how to eat it. But there's more to Parsi food than Dhan sak. And there is more to us than our obsession with eggs and our legendary Rani cafes. Welcome to Not Just dhansak a fresh new show where I talk to friends, fellow Babas and Parsi entrepreneurs about all things Bonu, a little bit of history, a dash of Baba madness, and a lot of food talk. There's more to Parsi's than meets the eye, and there's certainly more to us than dhansak Join me every Tuesday as I talk to some of my favorite Parsis in the food space in India and beyond. I am the Babi Bride and this is not just ansa